Lord, we're reminded uh, so often of what is most important in this world uh, when uh, eternity comes abruptly uh, in our lives and or when it uh, slowly seems to to get ever closer, Lord. Lord, it is a grace when you keep us focused and attentive on, on where uh, our truth and our life uh, is intended to flow from. Uh, your son is life, and that life is the light of men. Uh, and Lord, there is plenty of darkness that claims to have light, uh, but only uh, leads people into blindness. Father, we uh, are, are just painfully aware that prior to knowing Christ as our Savior, we needed for you to turn on the light. We needed for you to awaken us from the dead. And we are painfully aware, Lord, of the, the, our ability to quench your spirit, to grieve your Holy Spirit and to ignore your promptings. I pray, Lord God, that you would use your Holy Spirit here this morning through your word for each one of us, for us to see uh, and hear what it is that we need uh, from your truth here, Father. Uh, you have all the authority. Your word is our authority for life and godliness. And, and we need to be refreshed in what it says here. And Lord, we pray that you would give it power as necessary uh, to draw us to live for you. And so Lord, I pray these things. Oh, Lord, I lift the, the Smith up, family up to you as well. Uh, thank you, Lord, for how you have uh, empowered them already. Thank you, Lord, for how you have drawn them to uh, your truth and your in your grace and father we uh, would pray that you would continue to strengthen them and empower them with um, with something that is they, they know is outside of themselves Lord especially through this long visitation and, and all the tribute that your grace uh, really calls for and father uh, speak to us here I pray and I pray these things in Jesus name amen <clears throat> It can, uh, we come back to our understanding of 2 Thessalonians in terms of the importance of working wisely uh, during our time on this earth. 2 Thessalonians has informed us about the fact that we can work and walk wisely. We can walk wisely with the Lord uh, through a day and age in which persecution um, is rampant as the Thessalonian believers lived among even as young believers, how even the Apostle Paul was encouraged and refreshed to see their following Christ together amidst persecution. We have seen how uh, the, the truth of a coming upheaval on this earth and uh, a end times that shall begin at some point and the introduction of uh, God's greatest competitor, if you will, 
on this earth in the form of the Antichrist, who will amount to nothing, uh, who he will one day come to the scene on this earth. And we've seen how the Thessalonians have been encouraged that even with those facts, that there are great truths of the gospel that they can be comforted by and can be compelled to, to work wisely during this day, even that time. Part of working wisely is being a good co-worker, being, uh, you know, planning the work and working the plan. I read a book recently for one of the classes that I've been taking, uh, and it was kind of, I, I wasn't quite sure why we were reading this book. It ended up being really beneficial, but it's a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. It was written back in 2001, and it's called Good to Great because it looked at organizations and companies that were, are great companies. And they kind of listed off why they list, uh, would describe them in that way. And they compared them to good companies that just didn't pan out with a successful track record over the long haul. One of those great companies that they looked at uh, was, is Nucor Steel. And the information that, he had, that they had was back to 2001. So if you've worked at Nucor and you're like, that's not it anymore, don't pipe up, Lauren. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they compared Nucor Steel to, say, Bethlehem Steel that's in, Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh and other steel mills that, that had uh, centered their work in communities that were very high union communities where there had to be a lot of negotiations with the, with the workers and things like that. And that's what the, the book is talking about. That's not me saying that. But they compared that to Nucor Steel, which intentionally put their steel mills where people know how to work. They put their steel mills where people had grown up working on the farm and, and, and such, or had been surrounded with that type of work ethic. Uh, the CEO at that time, when he was interviewed, he said this, We have the hardest working steel workers in the world. We hire five, work them like ten, and pay them like eight. Uh, one of the, the systems that were, was attributed to, and probably still is the case, for the uh, good workers there was that 50% of the new core workers, 50% of their pay, 50% of their pay was based on the performance of their team of 20 to 50 people. Is it still that way, Lauren? Okay. Okay, and, and that's based on the performance of that individual team. So there's a lot of accountability going on there. One of the quotes that was made in the book said this, The new core system did not aim to turn lazy people into hard workers, but to create an environment where hardworking people would thrive, and lazy workers would either jump or get thrown right off the bus. It gave one account of uh, one guy that wasn't pulling his weight actually being chased off the plant grounds by his teammates, some of them carrying angle irons. We look here at the importance of the idea of do your job until the job is done. Do your job until the job is done. Those are, those are principles of working wisely, and, and I believe those principles come out in our verses here this morning. The principle of do your job really draws on to the fact that it doesn't work for people to just choose their roles as they see fit for that day. 
Uh, one gentleman uh, from the first service, I remember having a conversation with him some time ago. He was working at one of the local hardware places, and, and um, he said I was, everything was just fine until the owner's son started giving me directions. And, and he, he kind of said, I've already got my things to do for the day. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. don't worry about that. I'm, go- I'm your boss today. Well, it's important that each person knows what their job is, and they does, it doesn't change from one day to the next. And they should do their job until the job is done. It doesn't work for people to just leave their work half done. You know, one, one of the parts of, I, I try to teach my sons that part of maturing as a man is getting away from how long do I have to do this to how long is it going to take to get this done and sticking with it. I think we all agree with that, and I'm pleased to see them adopt that. So just kind of looking back over, just since it's been two weeks, we've seen in 2 Thessalonians 2 a discussion of the future devastation and the work of the Antichrist that would come. And even though the Thessalonians were encouraged that they're not going to be around for that day, they were still made aware of the fact that the mystery of lawlessness, that Antichrist is the man of lawlessness, they were told the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And that mystery being shrouded and will be revealed for, for what it is, but it is at work even still. And there's a future for those who refuse to trust Christ now, and it is not pretty. As we read in verses 11 through 12, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In contrast to all of this, is the thankfulness of the Apostle Paul for the Thessalonians. Even these young believers, this new body of believers in Thessalonica. And he writes this in our verses that we're looking at here this morning in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, where we read, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by God. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, you might recall that uh, they had been disturbed by either, it might have been all of these things, a letter that's supposed to be coming from the Apostle Paul or teaching that had uh, erupted within their body that somehow the persecution that they were experiencing meant that they were already in that judgment day of the Lord. Uh, But he references 1 Thessalonians when he says, Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. That other letter, 1 Thessalonians. says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work 
and word. The main idea that I want to get across to you here this morning, and it really flows out of verse 15, which is kind of uh, Paul's action uh, uh, application for this section. The main idea is this. God's saving work in the past and the future should move us to stand firm on the gospel in the present. God's saving work in the past and in the future should move us to stand firm on the gospel in the present. We're told a lot about what God has done and what God will do, and we are told how to live in the present. And we see that in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You know, when I preach, <clears throat> I often will word the points that I'm seeking to make as action points. Okay, we have as one of our core values as a body of believers that we want to be applying the truth to daily life. And so as an outgrowth of that, of that value, oftentimes I will word sermon points as action points. But, but I've just been feeling like I need to make this comment. Don't misunderstand those to mean that we achieve anything in our own power. Or that you are given marching orders from this point for how you in your flesh are to go out and do these things. Anything that we accomplish of eternal significance is going to be accomplished filled by God's Spirit or God's Spirit somehow at work through us. It's not going to be by our sinful flesh or by our human efforts of work. <clears throat> um, God certainly can do uh, things beyond uh, our achievements. But what we do achieve for his kingdom, we do it in his strength, by the power of his spirit working through us. So I just want to make that point. But with that said, our first action point here this morning is be thankful for God's saving grace. Be thankful for God's saving grace. We see that here. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now notice, he's not saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, Thessalonians, uh, for uh, receiving the gospel. He's saying, we give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as his first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked before that, that first fruits are like that, that first tomato that you get off the plant that gives you an indication of how good they're going to be uh, that season. First fruits oftentimes for Jewish people referenced that many of their offerings were to be from the first fruits of their flock, the first fruits of their harvest, of their crop. And, and that was an act of faith because what if a hailstorm or something came out and, and uh, devoured the rest? But the, so the first fruits are, are referencing 
what has come and is an indication of what is further to come. And as we've talked about, this is one of Paul's first letters, one of the first letters written in the New Testament following 1 Thessalonians. And, and these believers were some of the first ones that are encouraged concerning their faith. And they, in many ways, are first fruits of us who follow Christ these 2,000 years later. God is to be thanked for believers because he chose us for salvation. Through our believing the gospel. He called us into relationship with him through the gospel so that we might be with him in glory and experience his glory here. So we're to be thankful for God's saving work because, first of all, salvation is a privilege. Salvation is a privilege. I believe that we, Jew and Gentile as the church today, are God's privileged people. And as we've talked about um, two weeks ago especially, upon the rapture removing us from this earth, God's people Israel will, will be set apart again as God's privileged people solely, Israel on this earth. But, but we are God's privileged people at this time, and salvation is a privilege. 1 John 4.10 reminds us, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That term propitiation wraps up the idea that Jesus had to be sacrificed in his perfect godness in order to make up for our awful sinfulness. And, and he died the death that we deserved. He received that separation from the Father that we deserved. And this is what love is, that God, that, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, as 1 John 4.10 tells us. And you're probably familiar with Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. That is a key to the gospel. That we did not do something or be something that would make God stop and say, hey, they're worth dying for. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the reason for the apostles' joy and gratitude to God was his choice, God's choice of the Thessalonian believers for eternal salvation. From the beginning, God chose them not on the basis of their love for him or any merit on their part, but because of his love for them. Well, she would also be thankful for God's saving grace because salvation is a combination we don't receive some message in the mail that says, congratulations, you've been saved. Congratulations, you won the lottery. Okay, so, so take it to the bank. <clears throat> we enter into a relationship with God through tr trusting in Christ as our Savior. And you see the combination here, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This, now, we typically think of sanctification, we think of the process of becoming more and more holy in knowing Christ as our Savior. But this term here is describing not just being set apart uh, after we know Christ, but also being set apart for salvation prior to knowing Christ. 
And notice the combination through that being set apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He called you through our gospel. It is a relationship from beginning to end. A relationship of being chosen and choosing to follow Christ. It is... It is Part and parcel and, and, and incumbent in, in beginning that relationship that we recognize that my sin and everything that I try to do in order to save myself, it is tainted by that sin. It's like a shovel. And I have dug myself a hole, into a hole with it. And all of the attempts that I might make to try to save myself are just digging me deeper. That is the realization that we need to come to to realize that my sin has gotten me to where I am. And any righteous attempts I might make to make myself worth being saved are just going to be tainted by that sin. But thank God Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. And by trusting in the fact that he paid for my sin and he offers me his righteousness and God offers for me to be his child and him to be my father because of what Christ did, I can be saved. That is the gospel. That is both something that we were chosen for and that we choose to follow him in in faith. And we have, to, we have the opportunity then to grow, to replace the lies that we have learned over time with his truth the Bible Knowledge Commentary also explains this relationship between the Holy Spirit and our belief and the Word of God when it states this. This means God uses to affect salvation. Um, sorry, I had a hard time understanding this, the, the wording there in the first service too. God uses to affect salvation the work of His Holy Spirit who sets aside chosen individuals for lives of holiness and separation from sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates, indwells, and baptizes Christians into the body of Christ. The human aspect of salvation is belief in the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit then uses the word of God to purify the believer's life. It's a combination. It's a relationship of us and God. We can also be thankful for God's saving grace because salvation has a goal. It is a goal of glory that one week ago Chase Smith realized completely. The New Testament commentary says the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is in view in all the gospel. When people receive the gospel, they become sharers in Christ's glory. And that glory has already been manifested but its fullness is yet to appear. End quote. It is yet to be experienced. There are plenty of teachers who are gaining followers by telling them that God will bring them glory. He's going to bring them success. He's going to bring them wealth. He's going to bring them fame. The truth is this, the ultimate goal is that we will glorify Christ in his presence in heaven. And our life will look more and more like his as we grow in him on this earth. And guess what? It was not easy. 
And we glorify him now by allowing his will to be lived out in our lives. As Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. We begin glorifying God now while we are on this earth, and we do that by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. As Herod Sinkville writes, the most effective way to learn to be like Jesus is to take up his cross. Through that path, leads to, though that path leads to glory, it is often painful along the way. Be thankful for God's saving grace. You know, I love action movies. And I think part of the reason why I love action movies is man is always grasping for this, this perfect picture of his Savior, which I believe it is, it is a, a longing for our Messiah. You know, the, the typical action hero is part ninja, part sharpshooter, part commercial airline pilot. You know, that movie that ends with, with the, the, um, the plane uh, scraping on its belly, coming to a stop right before it goes over a cliff with the hero at the yoke of the plane. And the, and the police chief who, who kicked him off the force because you can't solve any crime until you've been kicked off the force if you're a hero, right? Police chief comes up and says, good job. Now let's go get those three bullets out of your shoulder. Jesus is our unbelievable hero. That is what we are grasping for, even in our myths. He is so amazing that his work has already secured both our past and our present and our future, knowing him as our Savior. Much of our joy as believers comes from the fact that our future is secure because of God's choosing us for salvation before we could do anything to try to earn it. And then he brings us to faith in Christ and tells us often of the future glory with Christ that we have to look forward to, that we can take to the bank. And I'm sorry, you are not the hero of this story. You are not even the hero of your own story. We are the clumsy, um, you know, sidekick that's always having to be rescued. If you're looking for, for to be the hero of Christ's story with you, there is plenty of works-based Christianity out there that will tell you that's the case. And you can find it by following the pages of the Bible that they had to rip out in order to get to that theology. Biblical Christianity is based on Christ's power initiated by grace and not works. And we're called to stand firm on those certainties so that, and so be committed to God's saving truth. More and more these days, you must be committed to God's saving truth. We see that here is where he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word 
or by our letter. Thank goodness we have lots of these letters in God's holy word. We must stand firm and hold fast to the saving gospel as given in God's word. There's two verbs here. One is to stand firm and the other one is to hold to. To stand firm means to to stand your ground, to not be moved. As 1 Corinthians 16, 13 puts it, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then the other term here is to hold fast. It means to hold on to something firmly. Think of it like an armed guard, okay? An armed guard that has been given the responsibility of guarding a certain person or guarding a certain thing, okay? They have both the responsibility of not being moved away from their position and also the responsibility of holding on to their weapon so that it cannot be used, all right, think of like secret service agents. You know, they say that, and I'm not against people carrying guns, but they say people should not be carrying a weapon if it could be taken away from them easily and used. They need to hold fast to it. I, you know, that's one of the reasons I think why the Lord has me not to carry a weapon. But, but if you're going to think about doing harm, I do carry one. Stand fast and hold fast, we're told, to the traditions. Stand firm and hold on to the traditions. And that's an odd word for us to appreciate. He's summarizing here the whole of the gospel, the whole of the gospel narrative, which had been told for thousands of years through the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul describes his stewardship of the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's not saying what I dreamt up, what I added to, what I, what I you know, came up from my own gray matter. No, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not free to adjust the message, and no other teacher is either. As one writer says, the gospel is not of human origin. The preacher is never at liberty to substitute his own thoughts for what he has received. Let's say you're a carpenter. Okay, not the, these carpenters over here, but, you know, you're a carpenter. It's your job. And, and you show up on a job site, and you're there to frame a house. Well, hopefully the foundation has been laid and is ready for the house to be framed. You're not going to show up to the job site and say, boy, that's a beautiful foundation. They did a great job. I like where it is, but I'm going to build the house over here. This is where I'm going to frame the house. That's a waste of a bunch of framing. No, you're going to frame the house on that foundation. The, the intended foundation for our lives is a relationship with God by His grace according to His Word. The gospel is that new foundation that is the basis for our life with God. This is what Jesus means when He, com when he compares two builders. And he, and he says... the. 
the man who hears my words and does them, he is like a man who builds his house on solid rock. Then he says, and the rain fell, and this is from Matthew 7, and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Did believing, you know, living like, is Jesus saying, the man who does my words is never going to have rains, is never going to have winds, is never going to have floods? No. And he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let me tell you, a person that is building their life on the idea that, well, if I trust Christ as my Savior, then I'm going to be healthy and wealthy. Well, when the rains come and the winds come and the floods rise, when life happens, that foundation is going to wash away and that life is going to crumble. Even more sadly, if a person is, being, is believing the idea that, that they can base their, uh, whether or not they are saved or not based on their own righteousness, based on the inclinations of their, of their heart, it's very possible that the winds and the rains that they're going to first experience the challenges of that is the very judgment of God. And that life will not stand. It's ridiculous to own a foundation and a house and separate them from each other. It's also ridiculous for people to teach that the true gospel is different than what the apostles taught. That it's different than what the scriptures teach us. There are silly, silly teachers out there that are saying, you know, when I want to hear the gospel, I don't read Paul. I read Jesus. And he tells me something different. And it ends up something really nebulous. Usually ends up being something that justifies the life that we want to live. I like what one writer says. Christians are in constant danger of being swept downstream by the currents of ungodly culture. They are also prone to let the truths they know and the relationship they enjoy with God grow cold. They need to vigorously hold to what they have been taught by God's servants. Second Thessalonians has, has given us an opportunity, as I've talked about, to, to look at the in, to peer into the end times, that next epoch of time. And and a part of that, as we've talked about, there will be the rapture of the church, and there will be and God will turn again to Israel exclusively as his privileged people. And, and those seven years of tribulation will be marked by the rising of an antichrist. And that antichrist, that man of lawlessness, um, he's not antichrist in the sense that he's anti-God. He's antichrist in the sense that he says, I am God. Very religious. In the same way that there is an antichrist, there is an anti-gospel. 
And, and we, we've been told that while he is the man of lawlessness in this time of tribulation, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I would pose that we have a lot of anti-gospels that are out there that are not saying you shouldn't listen to a gospel, you shouldn't believe the gospel. They're saying, no, I have a new gospel. I have a true gospel. I have a more evolved gospel, a progressive gospel. Many of you heard about the, the tweet from the Dr. Reverend Warnock, the new senator, where he, that he tweeted on Easter saying, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. That is an anti-gospel. That is a gospel that sends people to hell. That is, as I've said before, it used to be that we lived in a time of secular humanism. And that was basically saying mankind needs to be freed up to let his human spirit, that if the human spirit could just flourish, if the human spirit was just allowed in this utopian situation to fully express itself, free from religion, then, then uh, society would finally evolved to what it should be. That was a secular humanism. Now we live in a sacred humanism where sadly there is a lot of teachers holding up the Bible and claiming that it teaches that the human spirit has all the answers and the human spirit simply needs to be set free and be set free to do whatever its heart desires, to love whoever it wants to love, to love whatever it wants to love. One of the theologians that, that backs up some of these teachers from Oprah to, to Rob Bell or Brian McLaren or Tony Jones, uh, uh, some of these uh, proponents of, of this progressive movement, one of the, one of the theologians that, that uh, they love is Richard Rohr, who basically teaches this, and I think I've shared this before, teaches that the gospel is the fact that man is already united with God. And to be saved is to simply recognize that and to finally be freed from shame. It's not to be saved from sin. It's to be saved from shame, which, which has no relationship to sin, they would say. These are anti-gospels. Many modern teachers have forgotten that they are teachers of the gospel, not being inspired by new revelation. If I show up one day here and say, I'm going to share with you what God told me this week, Clear the seats. Leave me here by myself. The only authority that we have over one another's life is what we are given in the scriptures to share with them. In my opinion, the only thing that is being revealed by someone who claims that they have a new gospel is their lack, their very well possibly lack of conversion. I like what Warren Wearsby says here. God works in this world through the truth of his word, and Satan opposes this truth by substituting his lies. Human nature is prone to believe a lie and resist the truth. Satan accomplishes his best work through people in so-called Christian institutions, churches, schools, etc., who do not believe God's truth. 
They have a form of godliness, but have never experienced the power of God's saving truth, end quote. That was written about 30 or 40 years ago. Third idea here, following Christ isn't just about believing correctly. You must also be encouraged in God's saving work. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and how were, how were they established and to be comforted and established in their work for the Lord, in their work with each other toward his gospel efforts? Be encouraged in God's saving work. Barclay writes, the Christian is not called to dream but to fight. He is called not only to the greatest privilege in the world but also to the greatest task in the world. Notice the relationship with God that is involved and assumed here. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, removing this relative clause from in the middle, now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them. What is assumed on when we are working with believers is God is at work in your life. God is the one to comfort and establish you as you are a part of his work in your family, in your closest relationships, on gospel mission, in your daily lives. That is where you will find comfort and be established. I have a picture here that, that I like to think of. And, um, you know, places like uh, um, Wales will have national sheepdog competitions. And the shepherd just kind of seems like they're, they're along for the ride, you know? They're just kind of out enjoying nature and stuff. If you, if you don't hear what's going on, you just see this dog bouncing back and forth trying to guide these three or four sheep into a pen. And, and eventually the shepherd will go over and will close the pen door, and that marks uh, the, the end of their display. Uh, but, I, of course, the shepherd is sitting there calling out his personal calls to the sheepdog. And sheep are pretty rambunctious and, and don't make a lot of sense with their decisions. A lot of times, you know, the, the, the dog could be told, um, you know, dart left because they, the shepherd wants the sheep to go right. And so the dog darts left and, and, you know, one of the sheep bumps the other sheep and he doesn't know what he's doing. So he starts heading off to the left too and the others start to follow him. And so the, the, the shepherd will call out another call to, to double his efforts there and, and, and try to get the sheep into the pen. pen. And, and the sheepdog's not trying to get the sheep into the pen. The sheepdog's just trying to do what the shepherd's telling him to do. And you know, what's amazing about this is with, with all of this going on, a good shepherd and his sheepdog is such that the sheepdog is never frustrated by the behavior of the sheep. Why? Because it's just about him and his shepherd. He's just doing moment by moment what his shepherd is telling him to do. His eyes are just on his shepherd. And, and the, the, the sheep could be running amok, and the shepherd's just continuing to call out those calls, call out those commands. The sheepdog is listening to it, and the sheepdog is having joy 
in the process. He's comforted and encouraged because he's with his shepherd. And so we're called to keep our eyes on the chief shepherd. No matter how people respond, we can trust that he knows. And he knows. He knows what they've done and why. And he knew that they would. And he's involved in what will come of it. And we can enjoy his presence no matter what our circumstances. Like that sheepdog with his shepherd. The fact is this. By living and sharing the gospel today, no matter what the backlash, no matter how discouraging it might be, we get to enjoy a greater depth of God's saving grace and saving truth as we participate in his saving work. And that's what I want to challenge you to be a part. And what we will continue to seek to be a part of the body. Let's bow our heads.